This is Archive Atlanta, episode 54, The Clan. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. Before getting started today, I wanted to update you on the bike tour that I mentioned a few episodes ago. So October 19th is no longer open, but we still have room uh, for November 23rd. So there's already four people signed up for that date. So get in now while you still can. Um, We'll be riding as much of the city as possible while also trying to avoid as many hills as possible. I know that doesn't sound likely in Atlanta, but I promise to do my best to pick the easiest route for you guys. I'll put a link in the show notes um, if you want to find out information. This week we're covering a darker period in Atlanta's history, and that is the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan reigned terror throughout the United States first in the period immediately after the Civil War, and then again in the first decade of the new century. I'm going to focus on Atlanta as much as I can, because I promise you, you will be blown away at how many homes, buildings, and famous names in this city have ties to this organization. There are at least four or five places I'm going to mention today that you may pass every day without knowing its history. First, let's start with the earliest history of the KKK. Many do not know that the group had two iterations. Beginning in Pulaski, Tennessee, as a social group of Confederate veterans, by the following year it would be structured as the, quote, invisible empire of the South, end quote, at a convention in Nashville. It was here that the internal hierarchy was decided, with a grand wizard at the top, then a grand dragon, grand titan, and a grand cyclops. You have to remember what else is going on in this period of time in the southern United States. The Civil War has just ended two years prior. These men fought, lost friends and family, and witnessed atrocities of war we couldn't even imagine. All of this was to preserve the way of life in the South. And that life, economy, and most valuable asset were enslaved people. So all of a sudden, the war ends, and the people that you have been taught are beneath you your entire life are holding elected office, voting, just being regular people right next to you. And the response to that, for some, was fierce. As a direct response to Reconstruction was the birth of the Klan, and it was active and peaked between 1868 and 1870. A few things led to the original group's demise, one being that the KKK Act of 1871, which authorized acting President Grant to suspend habeas corpus and impose heavy fines on the group. He didn't actually do any of that, but that's besides the point. The Supreme Court ruled the act unconstitutional 11 years later, but at that point, the group had all but disappeared. So let's forward to 1915 and talk about what's happening in America. Between 1900 and 1915, more than 15 million immigrants arrived in the United States. In 1910 alone, three-quarters of New York City's population were immigrants or first-generation Americans. And the biggest difference in this wave of immigration compared to the earlier one was that most of these new arrivals came from non-English-speaking countries. So not only was adjusting to life in this place difficult for them, it was difficult for America to absorb all these people. Cities are overcrowded, social services are lacking, and this is when we have Typhoid Mary in New York City. She's an interesting story if you've never heard about it. So take that all in. 
Things are changing, faces are changing, religions are changing, and with these things, we see the growth of nativist and anti-immigrant movements. Nativism is the political position that favors those who are deemed native of a place over newcomers or immigrants. The general fear is that immigrants will disrupt existing cultural values. In February of 1915, the first and longest 12-reel film premieres in Los Angeles, and it is called Birth of a Nation. Based on a 1905 play called The Klansman, which portrayed the Ku Klux Klan as heroic protectors of white Southerners against evil carpetbaggers and their white and black allies. The movie brought these ideas to the big screen, and it showed African Americans, which were really white actors and black face, as savages, rapists, and unintelligent. This is also something I want to take a moment uh, and make sure we're all kind of paused to understand. We live in a world inundated with media. There are very few moments in our days that we are not shown media, listen to media, um, ads, just, just kind of take it in. And so these were not those times. Films were a very new thing. This was a silent movie. And so the way that commercials sell us things now Um, This was very much selling, and in most cases, solidifying the racist ideas that people believed at the time. In August of 1915, Leo Frank was lynched by a vigilante mob made up of 75 of Marietta's finest citizens. Just days after the governor commuted Frank's sentence, the men met at Mary Fagan's grave and called themselves the Knights of Mary Fagan. Make sure you listen to episode 13 for all the details. But it was that initial group of quote-unquote knights that would have a rebirth of the clan just a few months later. William Joseph Simmons was recovering from an accident and he had just went to see the birth of a nation. I guess you could call him inspired. He had studied some older clan texts and he came up with his own rebirth of the KKK. On Thanksgiving night, he had a group of he and his friends climb the summit of Stone Mountain. Now, this is possible because Stone Mountain is owned by future clansmen, the Venable Brothers, but that's a story for another episode. The group set up an altar draped with the American flag. They opened a Bible, and then they burned a 16-foot cross. Random fact, but the original clan never burned a cross. That scene came directly from Birth of a Nation. I think the connection of Stone Mountain with the Klan is pretty common knowledge in the metro Atlanta area, but if you didn't know, your next hike up to the top may feel a little different. In the first five years, the group drew in 5,000 members across Georgia and Alabama, which is not bad, but this wasn't really profitable for Simmons. He was actually forced to mortgage his home to keep the organization alive. Things would change, though, in 1920 when he met Edward Young Clark and Mary Elizabeth Tyler. Tyler was married at 14 and deserted by the age of 15, leaving her a single woman with a child in a time where that was not acceptable. In 1919, well into her 30s with a grown daughter, she formed the Southern Publicity Association with her partner, Edward Young Clark. Officing out of the Flatiron Building in downtown Atlanta, which is still there today, the company was a fundraising agency and worked with clients like the Salvation Army, the Red Cross, and the YMCA. In her first year, the company signs a contract with Simmons' Ku Klux Klan to revive membership. So Tyler is really an evil marketing genius. She creates a position called the Klegal, or recruiter, 
and they were sent out into the field to recruit new members. So these new members pay $10 to join the KKK, and the recruiters receive a commission for each recruit. So it's really like this giant hate group pyramid scheme. It's hugely successful. The clan membership grew, and Tyler and her partner and the organization were bringing in much-needed cash. By 1921, Tyler builds a classical revival mansion on about 20 acres fronting Howell Mill Road. This home is still there. It's still breathtaking, and it's on a huge plot of land. Now, it's sold recently, and I was kind of wonder if the people that bought it know or care, and I'm you know, just generally curious. With her profits, she would invest in Gate City Manufacturing Company, which was the sole supplier of hooded robes and paraphernalia, and in The Searchlight, which was a clan newspaper published out of the Flatiron Building as well. The Searchlight was an eight-page weekly newspaper, which was founded in 1919 by the Junior Order of the United American Mechanics, which, unlike its name implies, was not an automotive workers' union, which is what I thought, but actually an anti-Catholic hate group. And Tyler happened to be a member. With this rise of the Klan and the violence associated with it, cities are taking notice. The New York World paper publishes an unflattering expose of sorts or article denouncing the Klan. Now, that's in New York, so, you know, doesn't maybe have connections or impact in Atlanta. But the only newspaper in the state of Georgia to republish that article and be critical of the Klan was the Columbus Inquirer Sun. Because of that, the paper circulation drops by 20%, advertisers abandon it, and KKK members even threw sand and oil in their printing press. Now, the editor of that paper and Columbus and the anti-Klan movement have just a whole other amazing history as well, so if you want more about that, you can read it. In 1922, original Imperial Wizard Simmons is forced to resign because of his drinking problem. But that's just what they wanted people to believe. In reality, Hiram Wesley Evans and his supporters stage a coup, and Evans is crowned the new head of the Klan. Hiram was born in Alabama, moved to Texas, attended Vanderbilt University, and became a dentist back in Texas. He joined a local KKK chapter there and quickly rose through the ranks. Hiram was very much about political infiltration and education reform, and he knew that the true power was having elected officials as Klan members. Simmons was not having it, though. Um, there was a lot of strife there. He, he did end up suing Hiram Evans and the Klan. They ended up giving him, like, an honorary title. They paid him a $1,000 salary, $1,000 a month salary. Um, and then they gave him, like, a $25,000 lump sum as kind of like a thank you for reestablishing this group. In 1922, the KKK under Hiram Evans was a boom. They began allowing women to join, so they had a woman's KKK, and they even started a junior clan. They owned properties throughout the city, one being the Cotton Exchange office building in Buckhead, which is where the majority of the robes and hoods were made until 1929. This top floor had a secret room where it initiated new members. And guys, this building is also still there. In their peak, around 1925, the Klan moves into a beautiful, white, columned mansion on the famous Petrie Street. This becomes their headquarters, or Imperial Palace, as they called it, um, and then colloquially they called it Clan Crest. Although this house no longer stands, um, I talked about it in the Buckhead episode, but it is right on the spot where the Cathedral of Christ the King now stands. 
The KKK also controlled the Lanier University, which was in Morningside um, at the time, and where Simmons was once a professor. They also start getting those politicians. So the gubernatorial candidate in 1922, Thomas Hardwick, was voted out of office and replaced with Klan supporter Clifford Walker. The same year, a bill is introduced in the slate legislature that would make it illegal to wear masks in public, very much directed to kind of an anti-Klan thing, but it did not make it out. The Fulton County solicitor was a Klansman, uh, Fulton County Superior Judge. There was a county board of commissioners. I, just, I mean, pick a Fulton County office and there was at least one Klan member on it. The biggest coup for the group was the election of Mayor Walter Sims. In 1922, he was elected with backing from the Ku Klux Klan, and he won this adoration while he was a councilman by passing a resolution demanding that the Catholic group, the Knights of Columbus, be investigated and their license revoked. They also had uh, two Board of Education members who attempted to fire all teachers and principals who were Catholic. Uh, One of the members who introduced this rule or legislation uh, was Carl Hutchinson, and Carl was actually also editor of The Searchlight. This push to reform education should not be undervalued. There was a nationwide push from all clan factions in every state to get into the educational system. So if you think about it, what better way are you going to ensure that your hate group lives on um, than to instill those virtues in really young children? The height of the Klan in Atlanta was in its middle years of the Roaring Twenties. Um, I mean, they had their own baseball team. And they actually won the league pennant in 1924, defeating the Georgia Tech Rehabs. There was a paper I read in this research that put it much better than I could. The KKK was a movement, not an organization. So you cannot track the group's success by card-carrying members or who was paying dues. And a lot of people do that. Like, oh, there was was 15,000 members and then there was 5,000. But this was very much a normalized part of Atlanta life. I mean, they had a baseball team. They played against other regular baseball teams. So this was woven into the fabric in a way that is not just being a member of the organization. The Klan also faced a little drama around this time. Um, it sounds like Edward Clark was married, uh, but there were rumors of impropriety between Tyler um, and Clark. Edward's wife ended up filing for a divorce, and Mary Elizabeth came to a bit of a tragic end. She actually died of a chronic illness in 1924, leaving an estate of $500,000, which in today's money is $7 million. Throw in some court cases, charges of embezzlement, and even a murder, and the KKK did not fare well in 1925. In the political elections of 1926, there was a huge speculation about whether the Klan member or Klan-backed candidates were going to win. And they didn't. Across the board, every single Klan-associated member running for public office lost. The New York Times wrote a quote about Hiram. I think it was like, oh, Hiram Evans must be trembling down there in Atlanta because he was losing that nationwide political control that he wanted. Of course, this was not the end for the Klan. They definitely controlled things um, in Atlanta locally for a little bit longer. Hiram Evans would go on to serve as the Imperial Wizard until 1939. And as the group had sold its Buckhead Mansion earlier, Hiram would actually build his own personal home in 1934. Just about the only Art Deco home left in Atlanta 
This house also still exists, and it sits along Peachtree Battle Avenue. In 1945, another cross-burning would occur at Stone Mountain, and then the Klan protested on the mountain in 1962. So the Klan never really goes away. And even now, in our city, in cities around the country, we're dealing with hundreds of different hate groups. Some are formally organized, and some are not, and yet they're affecting us still to this day. So there you have it, the story of the Ku Klux Klan and how it connects to this city and what is still around for us to see today. Thank you all for listening. Remember to rate and review the podcast if you can, and then head over to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash archive Atlanta to contribute $1 per month, which gets you two mini episodes every single month on the 15th and the 30th. I hope everyone has a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.